So if you open your Bibles to Romans, uh, we are in chapter 15 and tapering pretty quickly to the end of this series here, maybe another week or two. We'll see, we'll see how the prep goes. But Genesis 15, starting at verse 14. Um, as we look really through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, uh, there is a pretty clear distinction between the priest and the people of God or what sometimes has been referred to as the clergy and the laity. In the New Testament, that clear distinction gets altered a bit, as the scriptures affirm what we call the priesthood of believers. And we actually read that passage today in 1 Peter that talks about that. Uh, And that is that all of God's people are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And that by the Holy Spirit, we have direct access to God, both in prayer and petition and in listening to his leading. And that all of God's people are given spiritual gifts, or sometimes referred to as a grace. Uh, And that these spiritual gifts that God dispenses are not simply for us to keep and and hold at home. Uh, They're made to be used and developed and exercised for the good of the body of Christ to build up. Uh, the church. And so the result is that all Christians form this royal priesthood, building up a spiritual building or a temple, so to speak, to use Peter's metaphor there. So the question that might leave us with then is, does that mean that there's no longer any distinction within the church in terms of uh, roles or authority when it comes to ministry within the church? And the answer to that question is no. Uh, While there is uh, a priesthood of believers, God has established roles of ministry, leadership, and authority. And today's passage kind of helps us get just a general picture uh, of what that looks like. So kind of the top-level point that that we're going to get at today is this. We are, all of us, all of the body of Christ, are to have a word ministry. Uh, Some are to have a ministry, a word ministry of authority, And all are ultimately under the authority of God and of his word. And those are kind of the broad strokes of today's message. So Romans 15, verse 14, if you want to follow along. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the first point I want to draw out is this, that all church members are to have a word-based ministry to one another. And I'm using the word member here informally. Uh, I'm referring to all of those who are members of the family of God because of their new birth in Christ Jesus, not because they received a favorable vote at a business meeting, okay? So I'm using the big term, member in the family of God because of Christ. Um, But I want you to see how affirming Paul is of the capability and the responsibility of church members to have a word ministry to and with one another. Uh, Look at the affirmations that he throws out. That you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, 
competent to instruct one another. In other words, the ministry of the word within a local church is not the sole domain of the pastors and the elders. It is the privilege and the responsibility of all of the church members that they share together. Um, Pastor Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, in his book titled Preaching, of really one of the best books I've read on preaching, actually, um, he kind of addressed this very point right in the beginning of his book, and he goes as far as to describe three levels of word ministry uh, within the local church. And I, I didn't list this out for you, so you'll have to generate this in your notes if you want to write it down. But um, the first one is this. It's informal, an informal level. And that's not to say that it doesn't come with power or with influence or that it's unimportant. It's, it's strong, but it's personal, interpersonal and relational. And so an example of this might be in Colossians 3.16, where we find, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So first of all, we see there's a, there's a musical component to this. In other words, we've already had a word-based ministry to one another this morning, even as we have sung the truths of the word of God in, in songs, as we've sung these truths. And sometimes we might find ourselves singing in corporate worship and we, we may come across a line and it's almost hard for us to sing it or to declare it. We might hiccup a little bit and think, I, I know that's true, but I'm not feeling that that's true right now. And that really is a blessing to be a part of the body of Christ who is declaring something at that moment that we might have some difficulty with. It's a way they... They shore up our, our faith. So there is a musical component, but it's not just that. Uh, we also see that there's instruction and even admonishment, which is a warning or a rebuke, right? So this is a word ministry that we might have at the coffee house with a friend. We've, we've met to catch up, and they tell us something that's going on in their life, and we might bring what we know to be true of the word of God to bear on their situation to encourage them. Or we might see something in our brother or sister's life that, that concerns us. And we might have to bring more of the admonishment to warn them and say, I see something that concerns me, it's not good, and I, I want to call you out on that with the word of God. But it's all of this is, is given in love. Uh, so I want to give you an example of this from the scriptures. If you'll turn to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18. Uh, we see this kind of fleshed out here in this passage. We're going to look at several passages this morning. You may not have time to turn to all of them, but we're going to be in this one for a few moments. So, Acts 18, starting at verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That's like the early name for Christianity before, before Christians were called Christians. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And we'll pause right there. 
And so here we see this kind of informal, relational, person-to-person instruction as this couple took him aside and said, hey, you've got some great truth, you've got a great ministry, but we want to build you up a little bit and kind of close some of the gaps of what you know here. And so they spoke into his life and instructed him. And so that's kind of this level one interpersonal uh, kind of ministry. The second one uh, and, uh, that Keller identifies is more formal instruction. And this we might think of like a Bible study, speaking at the Awana uh, time, uh, teaching time, or let's say small group leadership, Sunday school downstairs with the kids, maybe a counseling relationship. Somebody has come to you and said, hey, we have this situation going on with our kids. Could you give us some biblical counsel on, on what you think? But this is a little more formal. It probably brings a level of preparation to it. And so we speak a little, a little more um, boldly in these kinds of situations. And actually, this same passage in Acts 18 gives us a picture of this, this second level. If we go back to Acts 18, verse 27. So Apollos has received this encouraging teaching from Priscilla and Aquila. And then look what happens here, verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So we can see how even that level one interpersonal word ministry helped out and facilitated this level two uh, more direct teaching ministry of Apollos. And then the third one that we would identify, that Paul identifies, third level of word ministry, would be preaching or authoritative teaching as done by the pastors and elders of a local church. And I'm going to get to that one a little bit later. I'm just going to drop it out there for right now. But what I really want you to hear at the front end of this passage here are two things. The first is the affirmation and encouragement of Paul calling all of the church to have a word-based ministry within the body of Christ. It's not the responsibility of the clergy to do the ministry. It's the responsibility of the whole church of God to have a word-based ministry to one another. The second part of that is this. The responsibility, if that's what we have, then we're responsible to be skilled in the way that we handle the word of God. It's not just the domain of the clergy. We are to be skilled in how we handle the word. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, the great Awana verse, if we've got some Awana graduates around here, right? This is your theme. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Uh, When Amy and I first got here more than 20 years ago, Uh, We were still getting used to being a new couple. We went from two incomes to one income and added a child and then moved to Alaska. And we were adjusting to the cost of living and it was rough. We weren't used to these utilities. And and so kind of early on, uh, we had some unexpected expenses and I needed to get a quick side hustle to, to make ends meet. And a friend of mine owned a construction business and I said, hey, are you can you use any help? And he said, yeah, I can put you on for about two weeks as a laborer if you like. And I said, that'd be great. 
and uh, put it on weekends and, and, and evenings so I could schedule it into uh, my other work schedule. And I showed up on the job site, and um, he had a funny question for me. He says, can you swing a hammer? I mean, that's kind of a funny question. Can you swing a hammer? Well, I have a hammer. I've swung it before. I mean, what do you mean? You know, he says, well, why don't you get to work, do this, 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 and I'll watch you a little bit, and then we'll figure out where we need to place you. I was like, okay. So I got to work doing what I was told, clumsily, I might add. And some of you are looking at me, and you're like, yeah, that guy's a book guy. He's not a tool guy. And you would be right. You would be right. And um, I did my best and, um, and pretty quickly got demoted. Um, I went from whatever I was doing with the hammer to pulling nails and, and uh, handling debris and sweeping the floors and other things. So I, I got demoted uh, in my, my labor. But I thought it was a funny question. Can you, can you swing a hammer? So I brought up a picture this morning, right? This is not how you swing a hammer. I know that, right? Index finger down. This is not how one does it, right? And we can kind of look at this and laugh and go, yeah, that's not how you handle that tool. But let me ask you the question. How is your handle on the word of God? Do you know how to wield the word of God? Do you know how to grasp it properly? Do you know how to read it and interpret it and study it? Not just for your own nourishment, but for the word-based ministry that God has given you within the body of Christ to be a blessing and an encouragement and even admonishment to your brothers and sisters. How is your grasp on God's word? Is it in you? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So now while Paul uh, affirms that there is this word-based ministry that we're all to have with one another, he also preserves certain roles of authority when it comes to word ministry within the church. In fact, he exercises one of them as an apostle right here in our passage. So verse, back to um, Romans 15, verse 15. Yet I have written you quite boldly, on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace or the gifting that God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so what we find here is that some church leaders are to have an authoritative word-based ministry for the good of the church. Now, I recognize even making that statement makes some of you cringe. I just used an ugly word in our culture right now, authority. That's a cringy word uh, right now. Uh, in fact, uh, it reminded me of this story, uh, so I'll bring this out here. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported, Light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. Lookout replied, Steady, captain which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. 
The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came a signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send, I'm a captain, change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman, second class, came the reply, you'd better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) We changed course. It's just a quirky little story, but I think it kind of illustrates the way we can get when it comes to authority. Someone's got it and they flex. Someone else doesn't respond to it and they flex and it kind of becomes a back and forth thing. It can be difficult to be under someone's authority especially when we know they're not perfect and we can see things that ought to be better or different about them or about uh, whatever they're leading. But this story really illustrates our culture's problem with authority right now. In fact, we're sort of in a stage of almost throwing tantrums about it. You know, we have the uh, yellow flag, don't tread on me, culture. You're not the boss of me. Or mantras like, you do you. Live your own truth. But we all have to remember that before we are Americans, before we are Alaskans, before we are Bethelonians, we are Christians. And we are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has established in his church. Now I do want to recognize, unfortunately, authority within Christianity, within religious circles, within churches, has been widely and frequently and seriously abused, right? We see it all the time, every day, new examples of it. I'll just throw out a few of them. First of all, we all know of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, the sex abuse cases, the scandals, and the continued cover-up. Or you might even think about, even within evangelicalism, uh, there was the famous pastor in Seattle, Mark Driscoll, and his abuse of authority there in that church. In fact, I've listed in your notes a really fascinating podcast or a series of podcasts called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And uh, I, once upon a time, asked all of our elders to listen to that to see where abuse is possible within the church so that we can be aware of it. Um, Or we can see it in celebrity pastors like Joel Olstein whose net worth right now is somewhere between 50 and $100 million, depending on what site you trust. And the most, actually, he's not even the wealthiest pastor in the U.S., uh, uh, Ken Copeland, $200 million. Servant of the gospel? Or how about SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the abuses that have gone on there, and a culture of abuse that has been sort of protected? Even this morning, one of the songs that we had planned to sing this morning Uh, was written by a man who just this week was fired from his position because he was sending inappropriate text messages to men and to a minor boy. That just broke this week, and so we struck the the song from, from our worship set this morning. So because of this, what I want to say is we know that authority can be abused within the body of Christ. We have to recognize that God gave a good structure of authority He ordained it as something that is good and beneficial, but because it can be abused, we had better know what it ought to look like in a legitimate expression. 
The first thing I will say is this. Jesus is the head of the church. It is his church. He made it. He saved it. And he is delighting in it and bringing it to himself. Jesus is the head of the church and the authority. Now, he did give um, a structure of authority in the church, which began with God gave, first of all, apostles. And I'm going to say capital A apostle here. Uh, In fact, Paul, of course, is one of these. And he, unfortunately, frequently has to defend his apostleship, especially when he's saying something difficult to a church. They will kind of react and say something like, can we see your badge, please? And he will have to defend his apostleship. Um, But I want to just note that an apostle was never something that was simply self-proclaimed. You didn't just declare yourself to be an apostle. Uh, A capital A apostle was one who had been affirmed and called by Jesus Christ himself. And there's really a clear criteria in order for one to have served in this particular role. So after Judas betrays Jesus, and they're down to the number 11, we find in Acts chapter 1... the the 11, saying, well, we need to fill up this number back to 12. So it seems like the number 12 is significant to them. And and as they do this, we find sort of the criteria by which they're going to select someone to be that 12th apostle. And it was one who had to have been with Jesus from the beginning and one who had to uh, have seen and been a witness to his resurrection. And so as they they sought that out, they selected Matthias, who fit the criteria. But my point is that criteria can no longer be met. Therefore, there are no more capital A apostles. Um, We might see sometimes in the New Testament, uh, the word apostles, I'll say lowercase a, apostle, uh, described as sent ones. And they are not apostles of Jesus. They are apostles of a local church or ambassadors of a local church. Barnabas is one of these. He's a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul, but he is a missionary, and that is a different uh, strata of apostle. So I don't even think it's good to use the word anymore because I think there's too much confusion. There's no more capital A apostles, and I don't, wouldn't even use the word uh, lowercase apostle to refer to sent ones from the church, the ones that we're sending to the Dominican Republic, You could describe them as apostles. They're sent from the church. But we're going to call them missionaries. And I think that's a lot clearer. But the apostles, the 12, and Paul, uh, they were to establish uh, the church. They were to lay down the doctrine and the teaching of Christ. They were to oversee the writing of Scripture and even penning much of it themselves. But again, there seems to be this set number of capital A apostles who set the foundation. And the Apostle Paul even describes himself as one abnormally born and even the last one. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we see this statement here. He describes the resurrection appearances of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most, uh, at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he indicates that he is the last one that Christ appeared to. Therefore, he is the last of the apostles because the criteria can no longer be met. Do you see that? Now, this is important because there is a movement today. Many of you are aware of this because we uh, teach about it from time to time and try to expose it. And it's referred to as the New Apostolic Reformation. And the flagship of this movement really is Bethel Church in Redding, California. And this is a movement that basically teaches that there are modern-day apostles and prophets who speak with the authority of Scripture. And that if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you really need to come under one of these regional apostles and submit to their authority. This is a misuse of the word of God, it's a misinterpretation of scripture, and it is an abuse of authority, and we need to be ready to reject that when we encounter it. And that's why, we're, that's why I'm bringing this forward, or one of the reasons here. So what's interesting to me is that as the apostles were dying off, being persecuted for their faith, dying as martyrs for the faith, what kind of apostolic succession do we find? What's the leadership succession? Do we find them establishing new apostles? And the answer to that is no. The leadership that they set in order in the churches are elders and pastors. Um, so we see this, in fact, in the book of Titus, chapter 1. The apostle Paul to Titus, here we see this handoff. It says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on to describe the qualifications of an elder. And so, first of all, what I just want to say is this leadership, this authority structure within the church, God first gave apostles, and apostles uh, basically established elders and pastors within the church. And that's our second point here. You notice that we don't find the apostle Titus or the Apostle Timothy. They're elders charged with the responsibility of appointing a plurality of elders in all the churches. So there is nothing in the New Testament of an apostolic succession after the Apostle Paul. So speaking of elders, what is it there to do? In this same passage in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So elders have a particular charge within the local church to protect and to promote sound doctrine. A healthy church will have a plurality of elders who do this. And here, here at Bethel Church in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I'm proud to say this church does that. And this probably is not the last church you'll find yourself in. Uh, maybe you'll graduate from college and you'll be looking for another local church. Or the military will move you on or you'll say, I'm done with the snow and cold. But when you find yourself looking for another church, you look for a church that has a plurality of elders that proclaim the word of God, protecting and promoting sound doctrine. So then we come to the third category of leadership here. Among the elders, God has gifted and equipped, it, and equipped pastors to preach and teach. So this uh, we find in Ephesians 4, if you want to travel over there. Ephesians 4, verse 11. 
This is a page-turning Sunday, isn't it? Some of you are like, I'm glad I have my digital device. I can just tab. Ephesians 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the pastors and teachers, and here's the purpose, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the, the whole point of pastors uh, and elders is to equip the people for works of service. It's not to do all the work. It's to equip the family of God so that we all work together. Uh, it is my conviction also that pastors are a subset of elders. They're elders first, and then among those who are qualified as elders, some have been given a specific gift of teaching or preaching, and therefore they're set aside to that task. And the scriptures also say that and as they do that, uh, that they have the right to be re- remunerated for their work. And that is a good thing. And I would say, thankfully, you guys have been really wonderful in this in our life, as you compensate us and set aside our time so that we can serve you undistracted as your, your pastors. Um, but I see pastors as a subset of elders. Some churches, some larger churches, you'll find they have a pastor of this and a pastor of that and a pastor of everything, and they don't even serve on the elder board. And I find that really confusing. I find pastors to be a subset of elders. So along with the elders, their teaching carries with it a greater level of authority. And the Bible declares that this is a good thing and calls us to have confidence in this. And we find this in Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that will be of no benefit to you. And I want to tell you, that is the hardest thing about my job right there, is that I will give an account to the Lord for how I have shepherded the body of Christ. And that is an incredibly humbling thing uh, for me. We see this, even while this authority is affirmed and given to pastors, at the same time, there is an, uh, other passages that show us there's accountability. They don't have this uh, unilaterally but they're accountable for how they handle their authority. Um, In fact, we see in Acts uh, 17, this wonderful passage about the Berean Jews. Do you remember this one? The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures to see, every day to see if what Paul said was true. So there's an eagerness to receive the word, but there's also a steadiness to check it and make sure that it is being preached and proclaimed appropriately. And this is important because someone in my position or one of the elders or one of the other preaching pastors here at the church, this is a position that, that leads oftentimes to, that are, is held a lot of times by narcissists, like CEOs. It's amazing how the position lends itself to that kind of a leader. And I'll even give you an example of this. Uh, so a couple of years ago, somebody, I, would, I can't even say that they hacked into my Facebook account. They just looked at it. 
And what they did is they went through my account and found a number of people within the church that had posted something somewhere in there, especially where their phone number had been indicated. And then they manually went and texted those people, that phone number, saying, this is Pastor Eric, and uh, I I need some help with the project. Would you be willing to give me X dollars to purchase these gift cards? And about half a dozen people in the church got this from supposedly from me. And what was really humbling to me was that a number of those people with the best of intentions said, sure, I'd be happy to help out. That's very scary for me when I think about how the trust and and the support that you guys would place in me or somebody in a leadership position here, but it also shows how that could be abused or taken advantage of. So because that's the case, we have to make sure we understand what uh, proper leadership looks like for these levels of positions in the church. And I will say this, one of the first things we look at is the central message of faithful leaders will be the gospel and its implications. A faithful Christian leader, elder, pastor will have a gospel-centered ministry. And we see Paul um, doing this particularly. So back to Romans 15, verse 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to that city that I can't pronounce, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been in my ambition to preach the gospel wherever Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have, been, I have often been hindered from coming to you. So we see how the gospel saturated his ministry, even kept him from going to Rome, because he wanted to make sure it was going to all of these other places where it wasn't. But I want to bring this to one last point here, because we've talked about leadership and authority and how that can be abused And so I want to ask the question, how can we recognize abusive authority? Uh, And so I'm going to to identify seven signs of an abusive authority within a local church. I'll also point you to, in your notes, there's a link there uh, to a resource by Gary Brashears, who's one of my professors at Western Seminary, who's done a lot of work in the topic of spiritual abuse. But here's just, I think, seven signs that you can watch out for within any local church Seven signs of spiritual abuse or authority. The first is this, when they stray away from the gospel. When they stray away from the gospel. And they begin to focus on other things, even good things, but they do so at the expense of gospel proclamation. That's a sign of potential abuse. The second one I would say is when they start taking personal credit rather than giving glory to God for the work that happens in the church. Uh, and I will tell you, a number of years ago, I was visiting a church that my parents attended, and I was listening to the pastor, and I, I just was thinking to myself, this guy is so smarmy, and it's just full of himself. He's the hero in his own story, repeatedly. And I, I became very concerned about it, and it turns out he was, there were pl- plenty of things where he was abusing his position of authority in the church, and they ended up having to leave. Uh, 
But you could tell because it was focused upon him and it was not giving glory to God. A third, uh, so when they stray from the gospel, when they begin taking personal credit, a third one, when they don't accept accountability. When a leader will not accept accountability, that is a clear sign that this is a place of potential abuse. And I would point directly to Mark Driscoll in this. Uh, I met Mark early on in his ministry. He was an incredibly talented man, brilliant, very well-spoken. But his character flaws, which showed up later on, showed up in the first time I met him, when about 20 of us pastors were in a basement of a church listening to what he was doing in the early days of Seattle there. And he and another pastor pretty much almost got in a fist fight and had to be separated because he was so combative. Those character traits were never put under accountability within his local church. And when they surfaced again and again, he just dismissed people and abused his authority. At one point, getting rid of the elder board altogether and establishing a board of directors or board of advisors from all over the world that he had cherry-picked. He would not come under accountability of a plurality of elders. And that's a clear sign that that's an abusive culture. A fourth one, one who is authoritarian. And, and this one I think is hard because it's not an abuse of authority to use the authority that one is given. But I think when we can tell that it starts to get out of bounds is when people serve under that person's leadership out of fear and not out of love. So I think that one's difficult to see, but I, I think that's a clear sign of it when it's fear and not love. The fifth one, and this one may be really important for us to hear, especially right now, and I've already used the word, is narcissism. And this is where some of the key signs to spot, to spot a narcissistic person, they're never wrong. Everything they do is perfect. They can't be disagreed with. If they are, they will become vengeful or retributive. A narcissist will never apologize. And if they do, it'll be with a caveat. And that is how you spot a narcissist. And again, unfortunately, positions of leadership are those places that narcissists drift to, whether they're in the church or in the business or in politics. That's kind of where they tend to go. The sixth one, and we're going to bring this to a close here, I promise. <laughs> When the ministry becomes a cult of personality, when it's all about the charisma of a particular leader such that if that leader were pulled out of the church or the institution, it could no longer survive, that's how you know the institution is there to serve the man and not the other way around. So a cult of personality. And the last one is, I would say, greed. Greed. It's a clear sign of a self-serving pastor or leader. Uh, we do know from the word that pastors have a right to make a living wage from their ministry, but not a lavish living on the backs of those who generously give. So I think those are seven signs to look for to help spot an abusive culture, an abusive authority, or an abusive leader. So let me bring this all back to a close right where we started. All of the people of God are to have a word-based ministry within the church. All of us. God has given us what we need to be able to do that and to bless one another. Some are to have a ministry of authority, a word-based ministry that combines authority, but that is under the accountability of a plurality of elders. And all of us, all are under the authority of God and of his word. Jesus is the head of the church. Let's pray.
Lord, we know this is your church. Um, you love it. You made it. You delight in it. You are rescuing it. You are bringing it to yourself. And you have designated some, Lord, to be leaders and caregivers within that church. And I pray that we who do that would do so in servant-hearted ways and not in self-serving ways. Lord, I also pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that they would feel both encouraged and provoked to recognize the great privilege they have to be those who have a word ministry with one another in and through the church. And that that would call them to be skilled in handling the word, to know it, to saturate themselves with it, and to handle it with skill for the benefit of the body of Christ. Thank you for this beautiful church that you are building, your bride. Have your way with us. May we honor you in all that we say and do. We pray in Christ's name.